bicycle crash is not an accident. And when you find yourself in a situation that calls for experienced, effective, and positive legal support and advocacy, you can depend on any of North America's independent bike law members. Bike Law's cycling attorneys are members of our community committed to the pursuit of cycling safety and justice. For more information about Bike Law, log on to bikelaw.com. They're on your left, protecting your rights. Time for the Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cycling, and related topics. The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show is heard every Saturday morning, 7.30 a.m. in Northeastern Ohio on WJCU 88.7 FM and streamed at WJCU.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. This is our show for September 12th, 2020. Here at Outspoken Cyclist Land, we're beginning our 11th season of the show. Yes, indeed, we turned 10 this past week. Who knew it would last so long? My sincere thanks to everyone involved, including, but not limited to, my husband, Brian, my previous co-host and engineer, Greg Pretty. Tim McKenna, Gary McKeaton, Peter Wilborn, and Rachel Maney from Bike Law, WJCU, and of course, to all of you who listen and share the show each week. I am most humbled and appreciative of your support. So here's to another great year of stories, guests, book reviews, and more. So let's get on with this week's episode already. Sometimes our best stories and resources are found right in our own backyard. And for those of you who know and frequent the Ohio and Erie Canal towpath, you know what I mean. For those who don't, you're in for a treat. The Ohio and Erie Canal Way is a national heritage area designated by Congress in 1996 to help preserve and celebrate the rails, trails, landscapes, towns, and sites that grew up along the first 110 miles of the Erie Canal that helped America and our nation grow. Annually, more than 2.5 million Americans find their way to the iconic 87-mile towpath trail running through the heart of the Canalway. Today, I speak with Dan Rice. He's the president and CEO of the Ohio and Erie Canalway Coalition. We'll chat about the history of the Ohio and Erie Canal, how the Canalway is coping with the pandemic, and when our beautiful scenic railroad will once again be chugging along between Cleveland and Akron. My second guest is a survivor of the worst kind of crash, the one we all hope we never, ever have to experience. Last July, Andrew Bernie Bernstein was on his way home from the Boulder Velodrome when he was hit by a cargo van thrown into a ditch, and left to die. 
He was found by someone who, interestingly enough, had also been hit in the past and who stayed with him until he could be transported to what would be the first of several hospitals as his long and arduous recovery would begin. Now, over a year later, Bernie is still in physical therapy six to eight times a week. The extent of the damage to his body was unimaginable to most of us. And yet, that is not what Bernie, as he is known by most everyone, wants to talk about today. It's about safe driving and what he wants you to know, hear, and heed. So first, we're heading down to Akron, Ohio, to speak with the Ohio and Erie Canal President and CEO, Dan Rice. Hello, Dan Rice. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and I look forward to talking with you this morning. So, you know, we spend a lot of time on the towpath, and we spend a lot of time in the area of the Ohio and Erie Canal Way, and it's such a resource for us in Northeast Ohio. I wanted to share it with all of my listeners. Tell us a little bit about the Ohio Erie Canal Way Coalition and what it is and what it does. Absolutely. And, uh, we are just really blessed and fortunate to have this incredible resource because it, not many communities have these type of recreational amenities, uh, literally right outside our back door. And so we are a nonprofit organization, and we work with many, many organizations and individuals. It ranges everything from park agencies to planning agencies to elected officials to corporations, foundations. I've oftentimes said if you have a pulse in Northeast Ohio, we'll, we'll talk with you. <laughs> And what we do is we advocate for the conservation, interpretation, and development of the natural, historical, and recreational resources along the Ohio and Erie Canal. And so we work with organizations to help build the Ohio and Erie Canal towpath trail, maintain it, activate it, help organizations preserve historic buildings, and preserve natural areas. And because the Ohio and Erie Canal and the towpath trail is managed and really owned by over 20 different organizations, that's why there's a need for our regional nonprofit organization to work with organizations to help provide them with the resources so that they can help maintain this wonderful resource for the 2.5 million hikers and bicyclists who use the Ohio and your Canal Way and the Topaz Trail on an annual basis. Wow, 2.5 million. That's an interesting number, especially in the time of COVID, which is what I wanted to talk with you about. How have things changed since, say, March? And what might listeners need to know when they're heading out for a ride or a walk these days on our towpath? Sure. And, and if you don't mind, I, I could provide a little, at least a little bit more background information about the Ohio and Erie Canal Way and in the towpath trail. I mean, it's the Ohio and Erie Canal is a, a great uh, transportation resource that was built uh, almost 200 years ago um, to transport goods uh, in and out of the state of Ohio. I mean, literally before the canal was built, um, you couldn't get products out of the state of Ohio like coal and timber and wheat, and you certainly couldn't acquire fine products like uh, china or furniture. And hmm. so that's why the canal was built back in the 1825 uh, to 1832. It was built on time and under budget, and uh, really lasted up until about 1850, uh, and that's when the railroads came along. And then, even after that point in time, it lasted into the 1900s until the 1913 flood. And then, around the 1960s, we had a gentleman by the name of Ralph Regula, 
who had this dream of preserving and celebrating the Ohio and Erie Canal. And so he started advocating for this idea in the 1960s um, when the National Park came along, was established in 1974. It started to build further momentum. And then in 1996, it was actually designated as a national heritage area. And really what that means is that um, this is an area that's been uh, recognized by Congress as a nationally significant resource to celebrate the history of the canal, uh, but also more importantly to really export that ethic of resource conservation and see how folks at the local level might be able to preserve their historic buildings, develop connector trails so people can go out there and recreate in a safe environment. And we were just so blessed and fortunate, as I said previously, to have this wonderful resource, especially during times like COVID-19. Because now more than ever, people are utilizing our parks, trails, and open spaces as places of refuge and relaxation and respite because they're looking for ways to really recharge themselves because of all the stresses of our daily lives. So to answer your question directly regarding the impact of COVID-19, it's actually been a, a tremendous impact because not only do we have the regular users who are utilizing the Ohio and Erie Canal Way and the Topaz Trail, there are many, many new users. And so in some ways, our parks, trails, and open spaces are being uh, loved a lot. They're receiving a lot of love and use which is wonderful because it's great that people have these places where they can uh, go for relaxation and refuge, but uh, it is a stressful time, I think, for everybody, and we're just really fortunate to have these wonderful resources in places where people can go. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Dan Rice. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Ohio and Erie Canalway Coalition, and he's the co-executive director of the Ohio and Erie Canalway. And one, I guess, is the nonprofit, and the other is the organization that works directly with the Canalway, with the uh, towpath. Yes, that's correct. Okay. You know, a lot of people are finding that some of the resources in our parks, on our trails, are not available. Water, restrooms, uh, trailheads are not accessible. They're being shut down. What's happening on our towpath? Are any of those resources still available? I know you can go into Peninsula, for example, probably, and get water from maybe Winking Lizard or from Century Cycles. But how about on the trail itself? Well, we have been in great communication with our park partners, and we're incredibly blessed and fortunate to Cleveland Metro Parks, City of Cleveland, City of Akron, Summit Metro Parks, Stark Parks, Tuscarawas County Parks, um, that they have been able to maintain and keep the Ohio and Canal towpath trail open. And to the degree that they're able to keep the restrooms open as well, they were doing that as well. So we're actually not experiencing any of the circumstances that you described. Uh, I think, if anything, part of the challenge has been to keeping these facilities clean and sanitized um, for the safety of trail users. But all the trailheads are open and all of the trails themselves are open. That's pretty cool. I wanted to talk to you about a couple of other things, and that is the train. A lot of people don't know what that is, but we have this amazing railroad that you can actually put your bike on the train and take a trip up and down the canalway. Is the train running, and are they still offering those rides this summer? Well, that's a a good point, Diane, because we actually have three ways in which you can experience the beauty and wonderful resources of the Ohio Near Canalway National Heritage Area. We obviously have the multi-use recreational trail for hiking and bicycling and horseback riding as well. We also have the scenic byway in which you can actually drive a scenic route 
from uh, New Philadelphia to Cleveland uh, through Akron, the National Park, without actually getting on the interstate highway system. And then, as you mentioned, we have this incredible resource called the Cuyahoga Valley Scenic Railroad, which runs between Cleveland and Akron, offering excursion rail service. And it's a, a wonderful experience. It's run by uh, Mr. Joe Mazur. He's a great partner. So they do a wonderful uh, programming on the train. Unfortunately, they've been, like many nonprofits, severely impacted and limited by their ability to actually do programming and run their train service because of COVID-19. But I'm pleased to say that we just found out, I think last week, that starting in October, right in time for the peak fall season, that the Cuyahoga Valley Sink Railroad will actually be looking to start up their uh, rail service. And I believe they're also looking at possibly uh, conducting the Polar Express program this winter as well. So we're really excited to see the rare road back in service because it is definitely a wonderful amenity for the Ohio Erie Canalway National Heritage Area. It's fun when you're riding the towpath, which we do a lot uh, on our bikes, and you hear this train in the distance, and you're like, well, where is it? You know, But you can watch it. it you can actually see it go by from different areas while you're riding. It, it's, it is fun. I wanted to talk to you about one of the sort of controversial issues that uh, many parks are experiencing and having to make decisions about, and that is e-bikes, pedal assist bikes. Uh, there's been a lot of talk. Where does the Canalway Coalition stand on it? Well, I'm not sure I would agree with you regarding it's a controversy. Um, I, I think it's certainly an issue of mobility because not everybody is actually able to uh, ride a bicycle or ride a bicycle for a great distance. I, I just think it's a matter of opportunity and, and how do we manage that. In some ways, it's not much different than electric scooters, which are also in our urban areas as well. And so um, we've always taken the approach that accessibility and equity regarding our parks, trails, and public spaces is a high priority for us. And so that regardless of your ability, that's the beauty of the Ohio and Erie Canalway and the Topaz Trail is it doesn't matter what your income, your race, your gender, your education, or your experience is, everybody should be able to experience this wonderful resource. And it really is just a matter of, of balancing those different priorities. I know a lot of our park partners have been examining this issue um, as well. And I think, for instance, Cleveland Metro Parks, some Metro Parks, Stark Parks have actually uh, allowed and provide some guidance regarding the use of pedal. And so I, I think it, that they're testing these ideas. And at least so far, the feedback that I've gotten is that it has been positive. But uh, we, we've not taken a, a position other than to say that equity and uh, ability and access to recreational resources is a high priority for our organization. Perfect. And I'm a big proponent of pedal assist bikes as people get older, as people come back into cycling. So there's been this boom of people hauling their bikes out of the basement or looking for new bikes. One of the cool things that I found was your website. It offers so much information and ways of sort of ticking off boxes of what you want to see, where you want to go, what you want to do. Could you please share that with my listeners before we sign off? Certainly. Um, they can visit OhioErieCanalway.com. It is a, a great resource and tool for uh, hikers and bicyclists to uh, learn more about the rich resources, um, whether you're interested in bird watching or maybe you're interested in bicycling, or walking, or historic tours. This is really kind of your one-stop shop for that. And so we encourage people to visit our website. And if they have any questions, they can certainly call us here at the office at 330-374-5657. Or they can also call our northern partner, and that would be Canalway Partners, at 216-832-1825. 
We've been speaking with Dan Rice. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Ohio and Erie Canalway Coalition, co-executive director of the Ohio and Erie Canalway. We love our towpath, and I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me today. I hope we have a great fall season because it's really pretty here right now. Well, thank you so much, Diane, and we really appreciate your support for parks and trails and open spaces in Northeast Ohio and all the great work that you do. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. You have a great day. Dan Rice is the president and CEO of the Ohio and Erie Canalway Coalition. If you're interested, you can find out more about our beautiful National Heritage Area, the Towpath, and the Ohio and Erie Canalway at ohioanderiecanalway.com. So let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll speak with Andrew Bernie Bernstein. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. My next guest, Bernie Bernstein, was actually just featured in the Washington Post on September 4th in an article about how people are coping with pain and rehabilitation during the pandemic without the in-person contact one usually receives. It was sort of serendipitous that the article came out the same week as he and I spoke. Hello, Bernie. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be on the show. It's my pleasure to have you on. And you've been such an inspiration to so many people. Uh, I think within hours of the incident that we will discuss, but briefly, because there are other things we want to talk about, the entire bike world knew what had happened to you. So as a way of introduction, I'd really like to know more about your growing up, your school, your work, and especially your interest in bicycling and how you got into cycling. Sure. You know, I got into cycling as a child because it was it was a family activity. My my dad was a enthusiastic cyclist and you know, he rode he rode a lot as a as a young man and then when he and my mom got together, they they rode together and they took a couple of um, trips to Europe to tour. And so when they had a family, it became a family activity and we would all ride together and and then my dad and I would ride together as well. And as I got into high school, I wasn't really finding my way in sort of traditional sports, but I loved being active. And so I continued on in cycling kind of on my own. And then when I got to college, I started racing and kind of just snowballed from there. And my education is in history, but my my professional path has been uh, journalism. Uh, I was a reporter at a city newspaper, and then that segued into a career as a magazine editor at Bicycling Magazine. And after a number of years of being an editor, I transitioned over to the sales and marketing side of, of bicycling, and I now work for a marketing agency that specializes in bike brands and outdoor brands and um, and sort of related related technologies. So you grew up on the East Coast. Which you actually live mm-hmm. in Colorado now. Yes, I moved to Colorado in 2018. So I don't want to yeah. dwell on it, but I think it would be helpful to the conversation we're going to have if you give us a short history of what happened last July, July 2019, and what this year has been like, including your recovery, which is nothing short of remarkable. Yeah, so uh, last July, uh, I was riding 
home from the velodrome here in Boulder. Um, I had been training for the kind of the last big race of my season. Um, and I was getting close to home. I was probably like 15, 20 minutes away from home. And I got hit by someone who was driving a cargo van and it was a very severe collision. Um, I ended up kind of tossed into a ditch, uh, with more than 30 broken bones and, um, two collapsed lungs, internal bleeding and, uh, a spinal cord injury. Uh, you know, I was on the side of the road for about 40 minutes before someone found me. Um, and I ended up in a series of hospitals over the course of about three months before I was well enough to come home. And since then, it's been, uh, it's been a long year of uh, just tons and tons and tons of physical therapy and other rehabilitation activities in addition to, uh, to my job. <laughs> and of course, at you know, the same time, I'm dealing with the same challenges that we're all facing during this, uh, this pandemic. Wow, wow, wow. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Andrew Bernie Bernstein. He actually is a journalist. He works for, is it True Communications? Is that what I remember reading? Yeah, and I wouldn't say that I'm a journalist. I, you know, I, I had okay, a career as a were. journalist, but I think I've transitioned beyond that, and I do other things now. <laughs> With all that as background, you have some really interesting thoughts about drivers. And now that the economy is kind of reopening and the the country is reopening, I mean, we're seeing insanity here in Northeast Ohio. People are driving at ridiculous speeds, doing stupid things. Tell us what you think about drivers and where you want to go with that. You want something to happen with people. You want them to know what you think about it. Yeah. So my experience, you know, I've been driving a car. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn. So, you know, it wasn't the kind of thing that I needed to be driving a car at a very young age, but I had learned how to drive when I was you know, graduating high school and got a license. And then uh, I have been driving since then. And uh, you know, in that time, in the in 20 years I've been a driver, um, I've witnessed tons and tons and tons of dangerous driving, and I can't pretend that I haven't participated in any myself. Um, but I think that it's important for for drivers to really start to understand that they have a responsibility to themselves and to everyone else around them when they're driving a car. And too often, people um, don't take that responsibility seriously, and they become absorbed in checking a message on their phone while they're driving, or they become um, overly focused on a radio station or someone else in the vehicle. And all of those things are potentially very dangerous. Uh, I don't know the circumstance of the person who drove their van into me, but it's, I think, very safe to assume that excessive speed was a factor. Distracted driving could have been a factor. Substance abuse could have been a factor or some combination. And as long as people think that it's okay to drive 10 miles an hour over the speed limit or drive tipsy or drive stoned, we're going to continue to see collisions and dangerous driving. And not every collision is as bad as the one that injured me. But even if it's a minor collision, it's still a pain in the ass for everybody involved. And it should still be avoided. And most collisions are avoidable if, if people are safer, more cautious drivers. So that's that's the core of the message that I'd like to communicate is that we all have a responsibility, all of us who drive cars, which is most Americans, have a responsibility to be safe, cautious, respectful drivers who consider everyone around them when they get behind the wheel. Do you think that we are different people behind the wheel than we are when we're riding a bike? Do you think there's some switch 
that happens? Or do you just think there are certain people who are just irresponsible and basically don't give a damn? Yeah, I think both. I think there are lots of people who are dangerous drivers. I saw yesterday I was driving across here, across town in Boulder, and I saw someone in some kind of a stupid Audi, like cut me off to get into my lane, which was the right lane, you know, theoretically the slower lane and accelerate to try and make it through an intersection. And the light was red before this car entered the intersection and he had enough speed to, he or she had enough speed to get across the intersection before there was a collision. But like, there was no need for that. That person could have just slowed down with everybody else and waited for the light to change. And I don't know if that person is or isn't a cyclist, but I certainly know that they're a dangerous driver. I think that cyclists should understand better how to be safe drivers. But I can tell you that I see plenty of dangerous driving from vehicles with tons of bike racks and bike stickers. And I I don't think that cyclists are immune from this kind of behavior. So my biggest fear as a bike shop owner, and it's been like this recurring nightmare that's been going on for 40 years is, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I'm a bike shop owner and I hit a cyclist on the road, you know? So, so I'm, I think I'm probably go to the other end of the leash and I'm overly cautious, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. It's much better to be too safe than to accidentally maim somebody or kill somebody. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you think it's going to take to get your message out to the people who need to hear it? I mean, you know, it's sort of like we preach to the choir, the people who listen to the show, my core listener, they're very aware of how dangerous it can be. But by the same token, you know, there are a bunch of new riders these days. And so they need to be more aware. There are people who are pulling bikes out of garages that haven't looked at them in 30 years. And yes. so I'm wondering what it's going to take to change this kind of American psyche about transportation, I guess, or about recreation. Yeah, so I I agree that I think that we as cyclists and bike advocates do tend to um, speak to other cyclists. I think we're we're good at that. We're comfortable with that. We know where to find each other. But I think what it would take to make our roads safer is is a kind of a multi pronged approach where you need to strengthen enforcement of driving laws and you know enforce speed limits, enforce red lights, enforce stop signs, and enforce them in a meaningful way, not just a um, a kind of slap on the wrist way. I think driving education needs to be reformed in this country to the point where it's it's um, much more about the cultural responsibility of being a motor vehicle operator and not so much just the mechanics of driving a car. I think we need to continue to redesign road systems to make them safer for all kinds of users. Um, and I also think that we as bike advocates need to learn how to speak to people who are not cyclists. I think there are lots of I, lots of ways that we could do that. I wouldn't say that I have like the perfect solution. Certainly, I wouldn't put myself on a pedestal and say that like I've done a great job of this myself, which I certainly have not. But I think we need to be going to car dealerships and speaking to new car buyers. And I think we need to be going to motorsports events and talking to drivers. And we need to we need to go to places uh, where we reach people who are not already part of our community. And that's hard work, and it means that it's a day that we don't ride a bike, and it's um, probably uh, going to expose us to to people who are not receptive to the message. But that's what it's going to take. And I think the organization that you could point to in this country that's kind of had the most success doing something like this is probably Mothers Against Drunk Driving, where you know through a 
uh, well-funded and well-organized multifaceted campaign, they have started to make drunk driving much more taboo than it might have been a generation ago. And that's um, admirable. And, you know, I have tons of respect for that organization. And I think that's what it's going to take. And I don't see, I don't see a lot of movement towards those kinds of efforts uh, right now. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk with Bernie Bernstein some more. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. WJCU University Heights from the campus of John Carroll University. are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Andrew Bernie Bernstein. And we were talking about what it's going to take to get the safe driver message out there. One of the things I've always thought, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but about changing the way we talk to our kids when they're really young, not not Mm -hmm. by the time they get to driver's ed, but talk about transportation when they learn to ride the bike and being responsible bike riders at that point with, you know, hand signals and stopping at stop signs and all of that, because kids tend to take that information home to their parents. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if maybe there's a way to do a school curriculum that would make some sense. Well, yeah, I mean, so, you know, driver's ed in many places is not part of the school curriculum, but probably Hmm. should be. And I think like if we had serious course of education on how to be a safe driver and responsible driver when students were like 15, 16, 17, it probably would make our roads safer in in the next generation. But in many schools, in my understanding, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but my understanding is that driver's ed is one of those programs that isn't always funded or is not always taken seriously. And that's um, that's a problem. It is a problem. I talked to the people from the um, IH, IIHS Insurance Institute for Highway Safety occasionally. Sure. And, you know, they keep all these statistics and they're terrifying. In fact, you are probably one of them at this point. Uh, and, and you wonder whether the insurance companies should maybe get involved. Yeah. And, you know, like some of them, some of them do kind of have, you know, you hear about these like safe driver programs, yeah. um, which is great. But they're they're honestly probably not enough of an incentive to really affect people's behavior. It's so dangerous. Like getting behind the wheel is just an inherently dangerous activity, and we don't talk about it that way. That's true. You know, and I have to maybe give them a little plug. My only sponsor for this show is the Bike Law Network, and they work so hard to try and, and work with legislators as well as police and enforcement. And that's another issue your case still has no resolution. What the hell's going on with that? Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay, there's an answer. Yeah, the, you know, the, the Colorado State Patrol have been investigating and we've had some conversations um, with the police and with the DA here in Boulder County. Um, and there's there has not been any charges. Um, and I'm not, I'm not really going... To, I'm not in a place to, to speak to you about any specifics, but um, 
but it is ongoing. And certainly that's another problem. You know, we talk, I talked a little bit about enforcement a minute ago. And um, I think that the investigation of serious crashes and the uh, bringing charges against criminal drivers is, is an important part of that. And it's, I, you know, I feel terrible that in my case, there is still no resolution. And I have to tell you, Diane, like, I come to this situation with a lot of privilege. I am white. I have a lot of people in my family who are also white and are also strong advocates for me. And I have a great lawyer who I was able to, you know, hire because of all my privilege. And despite all of that, I'm, this case is still not resolved, right? So imagine the chance that a person who is a minority and doesn't have a lot of privilege and doesn't have a strong resource network, uh, will, you know, imagine the, cha- the challenge they would have having a resolution on a case like this. And so I, you know, I see bike advocacy as, as a social justice issue. And, and I think that's, that's an area that we need to improve on in this country as well is remembering that there can be all kinds of victims of vehicular violence and, the reality, and I, I don't have statistics on this, but I would guess that if we could figure it out, the majority of the victims of vehicular violence are minority people who are transportation cyclists and not someone like me who is like riding my expensive road bike home from a day at the velodrome. Such an interesting point. My bike law people represent pro bono people just like you're talking about who mm-hmm. don't have the resources to go after I mean, I can't even imagine what your medical bills are. I can't even fathom it. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, a lot is probably all we need to say. So I, yeah. I, I only want to talk about one other thing, and I really appreciate you you talking to me about this. I've talked with other survivors. Almost to a person, they have such an indomitable spirit. Uh, you know, it just kind of oozes from them. And you've been doing some writing, which you, you wrote a beautiful piece. I think it was for, was it for Outside? or for That's right. Yeah. yeah for outside. And, and you've done some interviewing. What kind of responses are you getting to your story? Um, well, there's a, there's a few different responses. There's been a lot of people who, um, who reach out with supportive messages and, you know, encourage me to you know, push on in the recovery. And, uh, you know, they're inspired by my progress. Um and then there are the people who can relate. And I would break that into two categories. There's the people who've been hit by cars and they can relate to the experience of being hit by cars. And then there are the people who, like me, have some level of paralysis as a result of a spinal cord injury. And it's been really powerful for me to connect with that community of people who, for, for whatever the cause, now have a life that is um, permanently altered. That, that's been helpful to me is just to like connect with that community and and feel like I am very much not alone in kind of trying to reimagine myself and reinvent myself as this person with this permanent disability and to also educate myself about like what's working for others, like what things might I want to try, what might be possible for me with my, with my level of injury. So in, in a word, I would say the response to, to my, my media presence has been overwhelmingly positive. And yeah, there's the, there's the positivity that I give and the positive positivity that I receive. I've read your interviews. I knew what was going on from the very beginning. It was amazing to watch your progress when there was a very scary prognosis at the beginning. And I know that you are now actually riding a bike kind of, you are, you walked, did you just walk a 10 K? Is that what I saw? 
Yeah, I gave myself the goal of, of walking a 10K by the end of summer. Um, so last weekend, I, uh, I achieved that goal. <laughs> Good for you. Thank you. And I know yeah. you've got like a marathon in your sights, crazy man. Well, maybe. We'll see. Okay. Well, <laughs> Only I, if I can get a lot faster. If people want to reach out to you, are you available for them to, you know, contact you in some way? Sure. Yeah, I think the best way is to reach me on Instagram. And my Instagram handle is at Bernie Tweets. We'll put that up on our Facebook page. Great. Well, Bernie, thank you so much for talking with me. I wish you a lot of luck. Keep going. I think you're doing a great job. And we'll talk again, I hope, sometime. May I just say one more thing? Diane? Of course. You can say whatever you want. Sure. And I, 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 I want to just say something about you. And I, I hope you won't be too... Um, uh, I hope you'll take it the right way. But um, back in June, when the social justice movement started, I saw you um, have a moment of personal growth where you were willing to take an information about the the Black experience and and grow from it and learn. And I think that uh, was really beautiful to, to witness. I saw it play out on Facebook. And I want to commend you for being willing to um, hear and grow from from new information. I just want to say that it was a wonderful example, and I hope that many of your listeners will will look to your example as someone who um, started with one viewpoint and was willing to learn something and change your viewpoint. Uh, and I hope that they will apply that broadly, both to the minority experience in this country, which is so important right now, but also to um, their driving habits. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. It was important to me, and I am never too proud to say that I'm wrong. And I am yes. always, I am always willing to learn something new. I really appreciate you saying that because one of the things I know about myself is that uh, I grew up just as you did in a privileged white family. And uh, I didn't understand that particular comment until you pointed it out. And as soon as I got it, I got it. It was like, Oh, holy shit. I get this. And right. so thank you for mentioning it. And I appreciate you saying that. I really do. Thank you. You're welcome. And I, I, I mean it. I hope that many of your readers will uh, be willing to examine their own views on many topics, but especially their driving habits and acknowledge and admit when they're wrong and change for the better. Great way to end it. Bernie, thank okay. you so much. Keep going. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. If you are interested in continuing to follow Bernie's story and his journey toward more mobility, you can follow him on Instagram at Bernie Tweets. And if you'd like to read this story in the Washington Post, you can log on to WashingtonPost.com forward slash health forward slash COVID dash athlete dash injury dash therapy. The article was published September 4th. So my thanks to both Bernie Bernstein and Dan Rice for joining me this week. Remember that you can always join the conversation on our Facebook page. You can send us a tweet at Outspoken Cyclist without the E or make a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com. I'd also like to request that you rate the show and perhaps write a review on your favorite podcast app. Turns out that's how we get more listeners. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be back next week with a brand new edition of The Outspoken Cyclist. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay well, 
And remember, if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and welcome your comments and thoughts on Twitter and Facebook. Visit OutspokenCyclist.com to hear this and all past shows. We'll be back next week with more great conversation and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.